Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. We're going to be camping out in Romans uh, for this morning, and it's going to be an awesome opportunity just to be able to see everything that God is telling us uh, about ourselves, about our identity in Christ from the book of Romans. But before we start that, today is Mother's Day. How many moms are here? If you're a mom, raise your hand. If you're a mom, you know what, do better than that. Stand up, because we'd like to recognize you as mom, right? Moms are great. We love our moms. And as I was thinking about last week, I mean, the last couple of weeks have been kind of crazy, right? With everything that's been going on here in our church body, just the world around us, the primaries, the election, everything that's going on is just really unsettling at times. It can be really frustrating and maybe even a little worrisome. And as I was talking about thinking about offering Patrick another week off and just saying, you know, Patrick, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll preach for you. It's, it's okay. And then I realized I really don't have anything prepared to preach. So I have to really prepare something fresh. Okay. Patrick takes me up on the offer. Okay. Now what, Lord? Um, now I got to come up with a message. And this is going to be an interesting opportunity because most of the time I'm always working on something. So I've always got something pretty much ready to go so that when Patrick calls me at 7 a.m. on Sunday and says I'm not going to be there, I'm okay with that for the most part. However, this week, it was one of those weeks where I actually took the entire week to, to prepare a message. And I, I had to figure out something. And I was thinking... Do I want to do another psalm? Well, I don't know if I want to do another psalm. Do I want to do a topical? Ah. Do I want to pick another short passage, a short book? And then I looked around on my, on my floor in my office, and I have a big bag full of books that are all stacked up. And the book on top is the book that is kind of next on my list to read. And it was called Who Am I by Jerry Bridges. And it was, it's this book right here, little, tiny little book. So I picked it up, and I quickly read it um, Sunday afternoon and said, yes. This is what I want to do. So I'm preparing my message Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then really about Tuesday night, it, it dawns on me, Sunday's Mother's Day, and this message has absolutely nothing to do with mothers. So for moms, I hope you're not too disappointed. I'm sorry. Maybe you're relieved. You're welcome. Um, but there will definitely be encouragement for all of us. From this topic, from this message, because this is going to be an opportunity for us to hear from God through his word about who we are and who we ought to identify with and what our identity is in Christ. So many times it's interesting to, to watch secular society and we see how many people identify themselves through who they are and what they do and even through their moms. We all have been given the perfect mother. We have. God knew exactly what we needed when we were born. That kind of mother that we needed from infancy to toddlerhood to childhood to young adulthood, he gave us the perfect mother. I know that I had the perfect mother because my mom had to put up with a slightly stubborn, little bit defiant, strong-willed, rebellious, unregenerate reprobate for about 20 years. And she did it amazingly. And she never wavered in her faith that what God did in my 
childhood and early adolescence, he was going to complete later on in life. And I chafed at that. I couldn't stand going to work with my mom when I was sick and I had to stay home, but she wouldn't let me stay home alone because she knew I'd goof off, you know. So I'd have to go to work with her and then she would, oh, you're Margaret's son. Oh, you're Margaret's son. Oh, you're Mrs. Nick's son. I'm Brian. You know, I chafed at that. We chafe at that sometimes and we squirm and wiggle and we don't want to be known that way. But then something radical happened when I was about 20 years old. And God saved me. Not because of anything that I had done, but because of his great love with which he loved me, he saved me. And when he did that, he changed my identity. Completely changed it. I became a Christian. I became a little Christ, a reflection of who Christ is. I became one who submits to Christ in all things as Lord and Savior. With the secularization of society around us and how Jesus and the gospel is being taken out of society, it's even being taken out of the church. To the point that the term Christian isn't enough anymore to describe who we are. Because if a man like Donald Trump can call himself a Christian and gain the evangelical support in the Republican Party in a presidential race... I don't think that word means what you think it means. Too many churchgoers have fake identities like spies on TV shows or in the movies. But we have a new identity. We have a true identity. And today, I want to look at six descriptions of our identity in Christ Six descriptions of our identity in Christ. These six identifiers or six identities are the marks of a true follower of Christ. And I'm just going to give them to you real quick and then we'll go through them. They are regenerated, justified, sanctified, adopted, slave, and not yet perfect. I want us to see with new eyes so that we would be encouraged in our daily lives as we walk through difficult times in life, that our identity is in Christ. But before we get there, all of these identifiers, before we get through all of these, I want to briefly look at one thing that describes all of humanity. And that description or that identity is that of a creature. We're all creatures. What does it mean... To be a creature. Well, biblically, Psalm 145, 15 and 16 tells us that we are dependent on God for food, water, air, for survival. James tells us that we're dependent on him for our plans because we don't know what we're going to do the next day or the day after. We say we do, but we really don't. First Corinthians, Paul tells us in first Corinthians four, seven, that we're dependent on God for our abilities, for our giftedness. We are dependent creatures. We're also physically fragile. We are physically fragile. Just ask Courtney. I think she can identify with that. Proverbs 27.1 says, We don't know what the day will bring. We may have to deal with illness, injury, accidents, genetic defects. We don't know. 
we are all physically fragile. When I was 20 years old, 18, 19, 20 years old, I was invincible. Nothing could harm me. Into my 20s and into my 30s, I became a little bit more aware of my vulnerability after having several accidents and injuries and surgeries and being a physical therapist and treating people that have gone through accidents and injuries and surgeries and realizing, yeah, I'm not invincible. We are fragile. Thirdly, we're spiritually vulnerable. Galatians, Paul tells us that something happened to the church in Galatia. And he condemns them and he says to them, who bewitched you to follow a different gospel? Why are you leaving the gospel that you know? Even a church that Paul planted was spiritually vulnerable. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that like babies being tossed around in the waves, people get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. In 2 Corinthians, he tells that church that there are some who are disguised as leaders in the church who should not be leaders in the church. I read a text like that and I pray, Lord, help me. I read in Acts 20 where Paul is encouraging and trying to spend some time with the Ephesian elders. And he says that savage wolves will rise from within the church to devour the church. Peter writes in 2 Peter that watch out because they are near. And then Jude writes, they're here. They're among us. Less than 30 years after the church was established, the spiritual vulnerability of the church was already being exposed. Well, these creatures are also morally accountable. Romans, Paul writes in Romans 14, 2, that each one of us is going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives to him And most importantly, and I think the one that we need to understand most deeply, is that without Christ, we are separated from God as a creature. Paul writes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Later on in Romans 6.23, he says that the wages of sin is death. But the true gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the reality that we have been freed from our guilt of sin. We are free from being under God's wrath. We deserve God's just punishment, but we don't get that punishment. Mankind is completely corrupt, totally depraved, utterly hopeless, totally helpless to save himself. There is nothing that we can do. Yet, in spite of all of that... All creatures also carry the image of God. We are God's image. We were created in God's image. But what exactly is that? Well, it's something, obviously, that separates us from the animals. And you can read theologian after theologian after theologian, and you're going to get all kinds of different nuances. But there are several things that are very consistent in all theologians that they agree on that the image of God contains in us. It's a combination of the will, the emotions, the ability to think and reason, and creativity. We have these things that give us something that separates us from the rest of the animals. But even with all of that ability, the ability to choose, the ability to think rationally, 
to think clearly, we are still utterly unable to save ourselves. We must have that effectual call from God that Paul talks about in Romans 8. Patrick talked about this a little bit this morning in Family Bible Hour. In Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among men and brethren. And to these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. God causes all things to work together for good, for his purposes, for our good and his glory. Even our salvation, especially our salvation. In that salvation, we are new creatures in Christ. We are regenerated. We are born again. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus back in John 3? What are you saying, Jesus? i got to crawl back into my mother's womb and come out again? No. You are reborn spiritually. We are dead creatures spiritually. And we need new life. And God gives us that new life through the gift of saving faith. There is belief that does not lead to salvation. There's also belief that leads to salvation. When I was younger, growing up in a Christian home with godly parents who loved the Lord, going to Christian schools, going to church, going to Sunday school, understanding the Bible, going to a Christian junior high school and high school, being taught the Bible on a daily basis, I knew and believed everything that I was taught. I knew it and I believed it. But that wasn't enough to save me. It wasn't until God effectually called me and gave me saving faith so that I could trust in him alone for salvation and repent of my sins. Because that is what I was missing. When Jesus came, when John came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus came, he said, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. So let's look at these six ways that we can identify ourselves in Christ. That first one, number one, I am regenerated. I am born again. That is absolutely necessary for us to gain identity in Christ. We have moved from being dead to being alive, from death to life. We're going to be reading a lot of Romans today. I want you to hear God speak through Paul, through these writings that Paul wrote down for us, because this is God's word. This is God telling us who, what our identity is and who we find our identity in. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in likeness of his, in his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Turn over to Romans 8, starting in verse 1. Therefore, huge promise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I have a new heart. I have a new spirit. I have a new identity, a new relationship. I have a new way to live. And if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, you do too. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we have been brought, bought from death to life, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Later on in that same section, but God, but God made you alive. God did that. What happens, though, when we sin? What happens when we blow it? What happens when We live in the flesh rather than the spirit. There's provision for that. We have the ability to confess our sin. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have the privilege of forgiveness. Isaiah 1, 18, though your sins are like scarlet, They will be white as snow. That is what our identity is as a regenerated, born again, new creature in Christ. So, just thinking about our new nature, thinking about our new creaturehood, thinking about our new heart. What are some questions that we can ask ourselves that might help us to live as born again people? Here's some questions. They're all going to start with, what is my attitude toward? So you can just write that down, and then I'm going to give you another word after that. Self-examination question. 
what is my attitude toward God? How do I relate to God the Father? What do I think about Him? How do I think about Him? When do I think about Him? Second, what is my attitude towards sin? Do I love my sin? Do I justify my sin? Or do I truly hate my sin and mortify it and kill it? Third, what is my attitude towards Jesus Christ? Is he my Lord and Savior? Or is he just another good moral teacher? Fourthly, what is my attitude toward the Bible? Do I revere? Do I uphold? Do I love his word? Do I take it in on a daily basis? Fifthly, what is my attitude toward prayer? Is it a chore? Is it a check mark? Or is it an opportunity to talk to Dad? And then lastly, what is my attitude towards other Christians? This is the tough one. This is the tough one. How do we enjoy fellowship? How do we enjoy each other? We are commanded to love one another. But there are times when we don't like each other very much. How does that come out? As a new creature in Christ, we need to enjoy that fellowship and enjoy each other. Do we participate in the common means of grace regularly? Do we take in scripture? Do we pray? Do we enjoy fellowship? Do we practice the spiritual disciplines? Do we memorize scripture, meditate on scripture? Do we fast? Do we journal? Do we write down things that God is teaching us? These are some of the things that new creatures in Christ do. If you're not, I would encourage you to start. Because this is how we grow, and this is what we need as new creatures in Christ. Secondly, I am justified. I am justified. I am declared not guilty. And that is a great verdict when we stand before the judge. Romans 3, verses 21 to 28. Paul writes this. He says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He gives a fuller description in Romans 5, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, 
At the right time, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In theology, in theological terms, we would call this work of justification monergistic. Yes, you're going to get a little theology this morning. I'm sorry, but I can't help it. This is one-sided. That's what that word means, one-sided. This is what God does for us. So what does it mean? To be justified. What is that? It is the legal declaration by God that we are not guilty. We are not guilty. We are given a new objective status based upon God's acquittal. We can be described, here's another big word for you, as imputationalists. You've got to love that term. It's almost a better term than Christian. Because what that means is it means that the righteousness of Christ has been placed on us. We are covered in Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be justified. This is based on the doctrine, another word, phrase, of penal substitution. It means that God accepted The offering of Christ as Christ paid the penalty, penal, Christ paid the penalty for our sins as our substitute. And he did that on the cross. We cannot ever let that go. That is the only way we are justified, through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It is not cosmic child abuse. This is a demonstration of the great love of God for us, his creatures. It is given fully at conversion during regeneration without any possible increase. It's one and done. The declaration of being justified is once and for all, and it must happen before sanctification can occur. So how does this justification happen? We only have two options. Number one, option one, you can rely on your own works of righteousness. But we know through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 64 that Isaiah tells us that all all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They are like filthy rags before the Lord. So that leaves us only one other option that we must rely on the gift of faith in Christ alone for our salvation. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss, even his self-righteousness. He says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish 
so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is justification. Living in Christ's righteousness. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he, God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus, sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The love displayed by the Father toward us supersedingly exceeds anything Anything that we could experience here on earth. As amazing as the love of our mothers is, God's love is infinitely better. This is what it means. Our sins are forgiven because they were charged to Christ. And the perfect righteousness of Christ has been fully credited to our account. Is that not encouraging? That we don't have to earn a righteousness of our own through works that we could never do? How how is this possible? Two ways. Renunciation and reliance. Renounce any trust in our own personal righteousness. There is not anything that I can do. I don't have a righteousness of my own that I could have, that I could present before God that would earn my justification. And rely completely on the finished work of Christ in his perfect life and his perfect death. So how can we experience this reality in our lives? How can we do this on a daily basis? Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to to yourself. I first heard this from uh, Milton Vincent several years ago. He's a pastor over in San Bernardino. He got it from Jerry Bridges, who got it from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Preach the gospel to yourself. So, we're made new. We are declared not guilty. And third, I am sanctified. I am sanctified. I am set apart. I am a saint. And you thought the Catholic Church had saints. Wrong. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. That's who you are in Christ. Paul tells us, Romans six twelve through 14, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your own mortal body, so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, but you are not under law, but under grace. So in theology, again, we have another term where Justification is monergistic. It's one-sided. Sanctification is synergistic or working together. It's with God. Now, this idea ought to set our focus on a pursuit of holiness and a practice of godliness. But I want to look at a couple things in sanctification because there are at least three types of sanctification that I see in Scripture, and and three types in in Romans even. 
The first type of sanctification that I see is positional. Our position is that we are set apart in Christ. That is our position. We are in Christ in the heavenlies. Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And then verses 14 to 23, he expands on that whole idea. We are in Christ. That is our position as set apart ones. Secondly, we see, or I'm sorry, in that positional sanctification is done by God. God places us in Christ. This second type of sanctification is the type that we're talking about here. Progressive sanctification. This is also done by God, and yet somehow, some way, we participate in it. In Philippians... Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is Paul telling you to earn your salvation? No. He's telling you that you have a job to do now. And that job is to kill sin. That job is to become more Christ-like. That job is work. It takes work on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute basis. Somehow I get to participate in becoming more like Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 12, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This takes work. Pursuing holiness, practicing godliness, working towards Christ likeness. And then the third type of sanctification that I see, I had to come up with another P word, perfective. Yes, I know it's not in the dictionary, but I like it because it goes with positional and progressive. This is also done by God. This is glorification. This is being made perfect. In Romans 8, verse 11. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's going to raise us up and make us perfect. He goes on in Romans 8 verses 17 to 23 again to expand on that idea of being under the curse of sin and groaning and longing for this glorification. Again, done by God. So in light of all this information, is sanctification really synergistic? Me working alongside a God? Yeah, kind of. It's God that's at work in us to will and to do so that we would then work it out according to his work in us. So if we're doing that, who gets the glory? God does. God does. And John Owen, a great Puritan, in his book, Mortification of Sin, says this. 
Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. Be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. So what does all of this mean? This justification, sanctification, all of this stuff. What does it mean? Where justification was concerned with pardon, sanctification is concerned with pollution. God is concerned about our lives. He is concerned that we continue to walk in holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Read the book of Leviticus. It's all about holiness. Where justification was a legal declaration, sanctification is a moral activity whereby righteousness is infused to the believer and our internal renovation is affected. Don't think of this infusion of righteousness in the same way that maybe the Roman Catholic Church would talk about it. This is God working in us so that we work out our salvation. This is God at work in us so that we become more Christ-like, so that we work out that sin, so that we get rid of it, so that we live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. There is a war going on. Read Romans 7. Read Romans 7. Paul is at war with the flesh. I am doing the thing that I hate. But it's not me that's doing it. It's the flesh because I want to do what the Spirit wants me to do, but I can't do what the Spirit wants me to do because I'm doing the stuff that I hate. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus that he gives us a spirit that we can fight that sin, fight those impulses. Where justification was a one-time act, sanctification is the process where we are subjectively renewed by God. Is it a straight line up? No. It's very squiggly. But generally the trend is upward toward Christ. Where justification is complete in its declaration, sanctification is begun in this life but only made perfect in the next And where the inward change of justification is instantaneous and complete, the inward work of sanctification takes place by degrees. Be encouraged. Not everybody is at the same place in their Christian walk, but we're all walking toward the same destination. It's like going on a hike with Mrs. Regan up to, and, 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 Miss, and Hannah Carmichael to Lone Pine Lake at Mount Whitney. And we're all starting together. And next thing I know, I can't keep up. They have just progressed on. And, they, and they're up there at the lake waiting for me. Where's Brian? Hour later, I'll get there. That's sanctification. We're all going to progress at a different rate. So we've seen that we are new creation in Christ. We are declared not guilty and we are in the process of becoming more Christ-like every day through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to see three more things quickly in the remaining time that we have. Number four, we're going to see that I am adopted. I am adopted. Romans 8, verses 15 to 39, Paul talks about this adoption. I'm just going to read the first three verses, verses 15 to 17. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children of God, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. 
quite literally, we go from being no longer sons of wrath to being sons of God. We, know, we are no longer sons of disobedience. We are sons of righteousness. We literally go from being orphans to being heirs of God the Father in Christ. And this requires love. If you're going to adopt a child, you have got to love that child unconditionally. Because you don't know what kind of baggage that child is going to bring to the home. And yet, that is exactly what God has done to us. He has loved us with such a great love that we can't even begin to imagine. And this, this adoption gives us two incredible privileges. The first privilege is hope. Paul in Galatians three fifteen to 4, 7. I'm just going to read a few verses out of here. Uh, verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Jump over to verse 29. He says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That is the hope that we have in Christ as an adopted son. Not merely an adopted child, an adopted son. And this language is very specific by Paul because in the first century Roman culture, it was the son that received the inheritance. This isn't chauvinistic language by Paul. This is language that helps us understand that all people who have trusted Christ are sons of God in that they all receive the inheritance. Men and women, boys and girls, all of us receive the inheritance. Peter understood this in his first letter that he wrote in 1 Peter 1. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is incredible hope. It also gives us entrance. Entrance as access to God the Father. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God loves us not because we are lovable, but because we are in Christ. And the love which the Father has for his Son flows over into us because we are in Christ. And we have the privilege, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, to cast all of our cares on him. Jerry Bridges writes in this book, he says, stop and think about what this means. The one we are addressing is the sovereign creator, sustainer, and ruler of the entire universe. He is also infinitely holy in his moral purity. We, on the other hand, are dependent creatures who were dead in our trespasses and sins and were enemies of God. How can we dare to address this sovereign and un infinitely holy God as our father? It is because we are in Christ, united to him in his sinless life and sin-bearing death. 
Christ is the one true Son of the Father, but because we are in him, God makes us his sons also. No other religion in the history of the world has ever had a God or gods who could be addressed in such intimate terms as Abba. Even the Jews of the Old Testament who worshipped the one true God did not address him as Father. And though there were notable exceptions, such as Abraham, Moses, David, and Daniel, the vast majority of Jews did not enjoy an intimate relationship with God. We do. We have God as our Father. Next, number five, I am a slave. Yes, I am a slave. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am a slave to God. I am no longer a slave to unrighteousness, but I am a slave of righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. I'll read part of it. So then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is hard to hear because of the negative connotation that we apply to that word slave. We don't like that word. And the reality is we shouldn't like that word. Because to be a slave is to be subject to someone against your will. That's the connotation of the word. That's what it means. But we're in good company if we describe ourselves as slaves. Paul described himself this way in Romans 1.1 and Titus 1.1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul describes himself and Timothy this way in Philippians 1.1. James, the half-brother of Christ, describes himself this way in James 1.1. Jude, the brother of James, describes himself this way also in Jude 1. And Peter even describes himself this way in 2 Peter 1.1. They understood what that slavery meant. Most of your Bibles, Bibles are probably going to use the word doula, I mean, um, bondservant or bondslave. The word in Greek is doulos. And the word means slave. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament has a 20-page article on this word. And the bottom line is, guess what this word means? In all of its semantic domains, in all of the ways that it's used, all of its forms, guess what the word always means? slave. And yet, in our political correctness, going all the way back to 1611, we're not going to use that word when we refer to ourselves in Christ. Yet Paul used it, Peter used it, James used it, Jude used it. And you know what? There is some evidence that in the first century, the term Christian ought to mean slave of Christ. 
And it's found in secular literature to be a Caesarean in secular Rome, in secular Roman society, to be a Caesarean was to be a slave of Caesar. It, it follows then that a Christian is a slave of Christ. But this slavery is not wicked. It is good. It is good because we are, we are free from that slavery to sin. Slavery to sin is freedom from righteousness. We don't have the ability to have righteousness of our own. And, pre- and the present experience of this person is shame. And their future destiny is eternal death. But to be a slave of God is freedom from sin. And that is good. The present experience of this person is holiness. And their future destiny is eternal life. This is a good thing. Slavery to sin leads only to death. Slavery to righteousness leads only to life. We have one more identity that I want to look at. And this is the one that I think we can all identify with the most. Number six, I am not yet perfect. I am not yet perfect. And I hope that encourages you. Because we are all still sinners in need of amazing grace and a daily dose of the gospel. We're not yet perfect. Paul, in Romans 7, beginning in verse 4, I'm just going to read a few verses out of Romans 7. The entire chapter is Paul wrestling with this imperfection. Paul, in Romans 7, beginning in verse 4, he says this, Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin takes what is good and makes it evil. That's what sin does. Jump over to verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, But the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is where we're at. And that is the tension and the reality and the truth of who we are in Christ in that we are not yet perfect. The tension, we're already, but not yet perfect. In Christ, we stand perfectly righteous before God. But in our daily lives, we see so much imperfection. We see so much remaining sin. In Christ, we are adopted sons of God. But in our experience, sometimes we feel very alone. Sometimes we even feel like orphans. In Christ, we are new creatures. But it does not always seem that way. It seems that it's as if the old flesh, the old man, the old creature has dominance. It doesn't always seem like the old has passed away. Paul experienced this. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about himself being called to the office of apostolic ministry, and yet he considered himself to be the least of all the apostles because of all that he had done against the church. In 1 Timothy, he said that Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief. He understood that he was perfect, but not yet. This magnifies the contrast between who we are in and of ourselves and who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ is what matters. Don't fall into the trap that William Cooper fell into of being so self-examinatory where you're just introspective to the point of spiritual depression in not living within the reality of the gospel. The tension is already, but not yet. The reality is that we are sinners who are embraced by a loving God. Thomas Wilcox, a Puritan, said this, In all the scripture, there is not one hard word against a poor sinner stripped of his self-righteousness. Not one harsh word. Think about that. Think about Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. You have Tamar who had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law in in Genesis 38. You have Rahab, a prostitute who helped the spies in Jericho, who's mentioned also in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. You have Ruth, a Moabitess, an ancestor of Lot, that the Moabite race resulted from an incestuous relationship between him and one of his daughters. You have Bathsheba, involved in an adulterous affair with King David. And it's not just the women... It's Jacob, who was a deceiver. It's Judah, who was immoral. It's David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet, they are embraced by God. The truth is, grace trumps performance. Grace trumps performance. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Never. Your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The motive of obeying God out of gratitude, instead of out of the assumption that obedience somehow earns God's blessing, is a radical concept. Obedience is better than sacrifice. John Owen again says it this way. To mortify a sin is not utterly to kill root it out, and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all nor residence in our hearts. It is true 
this is that which is aimed at. But this is not in this life to be accomplished. In other words, religious devotion may trim down the fruits of sin, but only the love of Jesus can pull up the roots. So, we are new creatures who have been declared not guilty and are in the process of becoming more Christ-like every day, who have become heirs of God through adoption, even when we are also slaves to the one who bought us as imperfect as we are. I am regenerated. I am justified. I am sanctified. I am adopted. I am a slave. And I am not yet perfect. And I'd like to leave you with three realities based upon this identity, based upon our identity in Christ. This is what we're going to close with. Number one, we are loved. We are loved. We are loved by our mothers in this earthly life like no one else can love us. And yet, we are loved even more by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are loved. Number two, we have privilege. Our privilege is in our position in Christ. We have the position of being in Christ. When you get home today, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and count How many times the phrase, in Christ, in him, in whom, is used in those 10 verses or 11 verses? Count it. We are in Christ. And number three, we have responsibility. The responsibility we have is to believe in these identities, to rejoice in them, and to live in them. That's our responsibility. Believe in all of these identities, that we are new creatures in Christ, that we are justified, sanctified, adopted that we are slaves of righteousness and that we are not yet perfect and rejoice in them and then go and live it out in the world. Jerry Bridges closes his book this way. He says, For every look you take at yourself in your daily experience, take two looks at who you are in Christ. Father, we just thank you so much for this time and this opportunity to come before you and just to be able to understand that we are all creatures created in your image by you, fully dependent on you and fully accountable to you. It was through your work that we are no longer like Adam, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we as a redeemed community of believers are in Christ through a union that is both living and representative. As we trust in your son, Jesus Christ, for salvation, you have made us new creation with a new heart, a new spirit, and a new identity before you. You have delivered us from the dominion of sin and united us to your son, Jesus. And because of that, we are able to resist temptation. And yet, we know that when we do sin, we, we have the opportunity to come to the cross. We know that you are always welcoming us to the cross. We are always welcome at the cross. For all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. You have declared us not guilty. Now we are righteous before you, all because you charged our sin to Christ and credited his perfect righteousness to us. You've made us saints. 
set apart ones. We do not belong to ourselves, but, but to you. We've been purchased and declared holy by you, set apart for you, and you, Lord, are always at work in us to cause us to grow in spiritual maturity, even allowing us somehow to participate in that process in every way. That is gracious and merciful. Thank you. Lord, thank you for adopting us, for calling us your sons, for being children of the King. You've given us privilege in this life to have an intimate relationship with you as our Father. We look forward with expectant hope to an eternal inheritance that is far more glorious than anything we could ever ask for or even imagine. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are your slaves. We are slaves of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are slaves of righteousness. And by your grace, we serve him by serving one another in the role to which you and your providential wisdom have called us. In this life, we are and will always be not yet perfect. But we are saved sinners, seeking to grow in holiness and relating to you on the basis of grace that is ours only because we are in Christ, your Son, our Savior. Lord, work in us now as we go from here to show our moms how much they mean to us since they are a gift from you, the source of all good gifts. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.